I call this year uh, Tisha B'Av, the dawn of a new morning. Which morning is, of course, M-O-U, right? Morning. Why? Because I believe that, I've heard it from also great people, I've seen it, that the morning of Tisha B'Av is different than the morning that we do, Loa Lane, if someone loses a relative, Loa Lane, a parent, a, a sibling, a a a a, a a child, Loa Lane, you know, there's 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 a concept of mourning in Judaism. There's a Shulchan Aruch that tells you how to mourn. Talks about the Shiva, the Shloshim, and in case of parents, the twelve months. And um, at the beginning of the three weeks, well, I was teaching about the three weeks here in Medrash Rachel, I spoke about Rev Soloveitchik's beautiful, um, even though it's something sad, but his beautiful comparison between the morning of the three weeks and the morning of the relative that you sit, Shiva and Shloshim and Yud Beis Chodesh on morning of a parent. And Soloveitchik says that <clears throat> that, you know, the Shiva is the most serious of the morning. And then when you finish with the Shiva, it gets less serious, very serious, as 30 days of mourning. That's 23 more days. And then you have, beyond that, the year of mourning. And each one becomes less severe halachically as far as the person whose mourning is concerned. But Salvechik says the same thing is true, certainly for the Ashkenazim. The Sephardim is probably a bit different but for the Ashkenazim, the three weeks begins the morning of the Yud Beis Chodesh. During the 12 months, right, we don't go to weddings. People who mourn don't go to weddings. Um, and same thing in the three weeks. We don't make weddings, right? We don't listen to music during those three weeks. And the Oval is not supposed to listen to music for the whole uh, 12 months of the year. Um, and then you have the, you know, um, that's the, that's the beginning of three weeks. Then you have the nine days, which gets more strict. That people don't wash the same way, and they don't, and they don't wash the laundry. They don't wear completely, you know, clothes that are just newly washed. Right? That's the thirty days. And then, of course, you have Tisha B'av itself, which equals the Shiva. That's why we sit low on a chair. Right? That's why we don't go out to business. We don't want to, in any way. Um, we don't want to in any way uh, take our minds off of the morning of a parent, blow a lane for morning for a parent. We have to have our minds on the morning and therefore we don't go out to business for seven days. We leave the business with the partner or we close the business, which is not uncommon, by the way. I don't, I don't know how often you've been to Machina Yehuda, but over the last 45 years, a lot of elderly people who own the stands of Machina Yehuda have passed away. I was some, I, gave them business, many of them. And of course, today their grandchildren are already there, but you would see a sign up in Machane Yehuda for seven days. It would not, I would go on Friday, but the sign would be up there for seven days. They wouldn't open up, they wouldn't open up, you know, the, the fruit stand for seven days. It's very, very common to see that, right? That's the Shiva. I even remember going to visit a very Hashuv Talmud Chochem that was sitting Shiva for his, I don't remember if it was father or mother at that time. Maybe it was his mother in, in uh, B'nai Brah. And um, he always escorted me to the door 
and showed me where to catch a bus because I don't really know where B'nai Brak, where you get buses in B'nai Brak. I don't go that often. I'm not a, a visitor there so often. Um, so he, he said to me, you know, he got up when I was going out. He's walking me. He says, I can't really show you because I can't take my mind off of, you know, mourning for my mom. You know, so even that, and he's right. He's right. You don't even, you know, you don't stand up for a rabbi. You don't, you don't walk the rabbi out of the house, stuff like this, because you have your mind on the morning. And that's the same thing with us on Tisha B'Av in the morning until now, right? I always pick the year when, when you could sit down again. Right? Um, until now. And then, of course, you know, Sasha went over to me and she said, hi, Rabbi Sharon. She had so much like, she was willing to, she wanted to say hi the whole morning, but she couldn't. But came over to me and she said, hi, Rabbi Sharon. You know? So, um, that's what Rav Soloveitchik said. Rav Soloveitchik said that the morning of the three weeks is the same as the morning that we do on a parent that passes away, but it's in the opposite order. Because the parent is Shiva, Shloshim, and Yudbeis, and, and, the, and the three weeks, nine, nine days, and then Tishabhav are just, you start with the 12 months, you get to the 30 days, and you get to the Shiva. That's Rav Soloveitchik. He does a beautiful, beautiful job in the comparisons of it. And it actually comes out differences in halakha the way he understands it, right? Than we normally have, but I'm not going to go into that right now. But you should understand that it's only in the way we mourn. But the nature of the mourning and the attitude is very different. It's really two different mornings. That's why I called it a dawn of a new morning. In the classical sense of mourning, the idea of mourning is to come to grips with a reality, right? A new reality, an unfortunate reality, a new reality. If someone loses a parent or a sibling, right? There's a new reality. They're going to live life now without the parent or sibling, right? That's something that doesn't easily come to a person. It takes a lot of work to penetrate into that new reality. So we come to be Menachem Avel, the person, to to in some way um, to comfort that person into a new reality, right? That the reality now will be here for you, even though it's going to be difficult for you, will be here. That's what your Menachem Abel is coming. The people are saying, we're here for you, right? For the new reality. But nobody's trying to talk the person out of a new reality. That's Mitziut. That is the new existence of that person. But by Tisha B'Av, it's very different because there's another type of mourning that we find in the Torah that nobody takes note of. Okay, so today we're going to take note of. So in source one, right, Yirmiyahu here very beautifully describes Rachel mourning for her children. Okay, and there's something here in the Parshanut of the text that's extremely important to point out. I'm talking in the parshanut of the text. What do I mean? Just in the, in the words of the text, you see that Yirmiyahu, when he talks about Rachel, is talking about Yaakov, and he's talking about the brothers. He's, in both cases, it's related to Yosef, her child. Right? Rachel's child is Yosef, Yosef from Binyamin. In both cases, we'll see it's talking about Yosef. Let's take a look at it. Thusly, God said, there is a 
voice in Ramah. I'm not going to go into where Ramah is exactly. I mean, we want it to be in Beit Lechem because that's where she's buried. But we're not going to go into that. The Ramban goes into it. The Ramban, when he came to Eretz Yisrael, did a, a research on exactly where Ramah is. Is it near Kevar Rachel and so on and so forth? He discusses it in his in his commentary on Chumash. What is Rachel doing? She's moaning. She's crying very bitterly. Rachel mavakel banet. Rachel cries for her children. Refusing to be comforted on her children because they're not there. Very strange language. She refuses to be comforted on her children because they're not there. Wait, wait. The whole point is to be comforted. Right, because now the kids are not there. Got to get to a reality, right? Reality check. Kids are not there. We try to comfort you. Okay, life goes on. She refuses to be comforted. Right? Where does she get that refusal? So it says, They're not here. Take a look at Sefer Bracious. You see exactly where your meal got this from. Vayikra Yaakov Simlotav. When Yaakov heard that Yosef right, was killed, right, because that's what the brothers told him, he rent his garments, he put sackcloth on, and he mourned for his son many days. And all his sons and daughters got up to 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 comfort him. He refused to be comforted. I'm not going to be comforted. I will go down as an avel to the next world. I'm not going to be comforted. Comfort means that I'm going out of my availus. No, I refuse it. So what Rachel says, what she says, is the exact wording that Yaakov uses about Yosef, her son. And Rashi makes a comment here. Rashi wants to know, like, what does that mean? You don't want to be comforted. There's nobody who doesn't accept comforting on someone who's alive who he thinks is dead. If he thinks he's dead, he should. Be willing to be comforted. Because on a dead person, the Gemara says there's a gzera, meaning God decreed it, right? God put it into our um, our existence that a, that when a person passes away, it's extremely difficult. If it's your friend, if it's your family, and little by little, it gets easier. After a year, it becomes easier. After 10 years, it becomes easier. You never, it always, there's always a vacuum, but it does become easier, right? So that's what it means that Rashi says, this was the way God put it into creation, that this should be, but not on a live person. Meaning that Yaakov refused to be comforted because somewhere deep, deep inside, he didn't believe he was dead. That's what Rashi is saying here. And 
The same thing later on, the brothers, Vayomru, when the brothers speak to Yosef many years later, many, many years later, they certainly thought, you think that Yosef was dead, right? They sold him, but they certainly thought all these years he didn't come back home, didn't write a letter. Probably he's not alive anymore. With 12 brothers. The sons of one person in the land of Canaan. And behold, why do you think behold? Surprise. It's a surprise because there isn't 10, right? There isn't 12. There's only 10. Right, Binyamin is with our father. And what is not? What did what did Rachel say? Right, we know exactly where Yirmiyo took this idea from the the not the existence of Yosef as being missing but not dead. Right, and that's what Rachel here is saying. She refuses to be comforted, right? Because they're not here, but they're not dead. And if I thought they were dead, I would be comforted. I would accept the reality. But I don't accept the reality. I don't accept. That's a new type of mourning. That I heard from my uncle, Rebarin Solovage. He said, there's a new type of mourning. It's the Meanoli Noche mourning. Right, I refuse to be comforted because I refuse to accept the reality. Because this reality is not true. Yosef's still alive, right? And we're returning back to Israel. Right, that is a different type of mourning. So when we were mourning the Beit Hamikdash, which we still are, and we're mourning leaving the land of Israel. That is a morning that is a different type of morning where we refuse to be comforted. Why? Because we believe that we're going to return to Eretz Israel. And for thousands of years, the people believe that. There's no question that when the Jews left Eretz Israel after the Hurban, they ran in all directions. Some of them went to Rome, you know, they were. They were exiled to Rome, some of them to other places in the Middle East, right? Jews went in all directions. They escaped in all directions from Israel when the second base Amikdash was destroyed. But I had a mentor that once said it this way. He once said, but I have no doubt that when the Jews ran in all different directions, when Mincha time came, they all turned in one direction. They turned there to Israel, all of them. Right. So that's what he said. He said there was no question. Nobody gave up hope. Everybody turned around in one direction, and for the next thousands of years, right, they all turned in one direction. If you were in the Middle East, right, we always wonder about it because we're in a, people come from the West, they turn to the East, but people in Iraq have to turn to the West, right. And that's what they did. And people in the north turned to the south, and people in the south turned to the north, right? I even saw in one house, you know, the, I saw in one house in, um, forget where it was, but it was, um, 
somebody told me, somebody told me that in his house in, in a Sephardi guy told me in his house in where his parents came, he had, he had the, it didn't say, it said Mizrach. Yeah, even though they're all turning to Maharav. <laughs> From Iraq, you have to go to the West. You don't get it but they had Mizrach, right? So that's why we called the Mizrahi, the organization, because in, 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 in Iraq, they probably had an organization called the Maharavi, right? Yeah. They didn't have the Mizrahi, right? Because it was... Uh... So that's what it means over here. And I want to tell you something interesting. What comes out over here is a real hope, because when I refuse to be, when I refuse to be accepted, well, excuse, excuse me, to be, to accept this, this new existence, this new reality, right? Basically, uh, there's deep down, there's a hope that it's not going to be the reality, all right? Even though it doesn't look good, Jews were in diaspora for thousands of years, right? They, they you know, in the period of the Amorayim, in the period of the Gaonim, the Rishonim, right? And there was terrible, terrible things happening to the Jewish people throughout there throughout the, the exile, throughout the diaspora, terrible things happen. It's easy to lose faith, but they didn't lose faith. They always, when they daven, they daven to that direction. This idea is expressed, I saw in the name of two different people. This idea is expressed in the name of Okaimi Valojin of Lithuania in the 1800s, as well as some sofer in Hungary in the 1800s. It's interesting that in that time, they both said a similar thing based on a Gemara in, in Ta'anit. Where is that Gemara? Take a look at number two, all the way on top. The Chazal say that anyone who does work on Tishabav and doesn't mourn Jerusalem, there you see the clear idea that you can't be working and mourn at the same time. And that's why the Avel stays home, right? Because if he's working, he's focusing on his working, right? Somebody wrote me, somebody wrote me two days ago. He said that um, Ikea, you know Ikea in Israel? Sure, you know Ikea in Israel, right? So they're coming to they said they couldn't come before the nine days. They're coming to build this closet on Tishabov. Now, the IKEA has Arabs working for them, mostly Arabs. When they're coming on Tishabov, they work on Tishabov, no problem, right? They're certainly not mourning the second base of Migdash, right? Um, and they want to come on Tishabov. So I told them to call up and say this coming after one o'clock, right? Because when you could say hi, you could also have them, you know. Also, already, you know, allow people to build. So he wrote me back that they said they can only come in the morning, right? So we, I don't know if you guys have ordered anything from IKEA, but they never come when they say they're going to come, right? I had me, Esther, and I had both the same thing. The first time we were upset, and the second time we started laughing, right? The first time they called us, they said they're delivering a a cabinet, right? They can deliver a cabinet at between eight and nine, we were already in the car going to, to Medrash Rachel, and they told us they're going to come between one and three. And those originally said one and three, and now they called to say, we're almost there, 20 minutes from your house, eight and nine. So we really got angry. We said, nobody's home, you know? 
So that happened the first time, but we figured out how they could deliver it between eight. Then a week later, they, they had made a mistake in building the cabinet. They had to rebuild it. They came again. It, they they seemed to have waited till we left the house, right? And we were on the exact same highway. And they called again, and they said, "We're coming in twenty minutes," right? So instead of getting angry, we just laughed. We both laughed, and had a granddaughter in the in the car. She also was laughing because she was in the car the first time as well. Like we all laughing. They never come at the right time, right? But so I told this guy, I said, Stu, don't worry. They'll, they'll come before. If they told you they can't come, they can only come from between eight and 10. They're going to come between one and three. Don't worry. So he says, well, let's say they don't. Can I let them build it? So I told him, I don't want to pask in that child because you have to be Metabel al Yerushalayim on Eretz Yisrael, on, on the base of Mikdash. And I can't imagine you'll be able to have it in your head if they're coming and they start building a cabinet. So I told him to ask a, a very big posek. The very big posek said that he, very bidievit, he said, Rabbi Avishai David, he said that you're you're allowed to do it very bidievit. He didn't like it, but he said, you know, if they're already coming, let them do it. But he said to him, you shouldn't be sitting there watching them. That's what he said. Because this Gemara, you don't see in it, you will not see in the outpouring of joy of Jerusalem if you don't if you don't mourn about Jerusalem. Anyone who mourns on Jerusalem will merit to see, right, in its simcha. And if he doesn't mourn, he will not merit to see it. Ask for Chaim Ivalajan a tremendous question on the grammar of this Gemara. Call him Masaba Yushlaim Zochavaroa? No, no, Yiskivayira. Right? It should be future tense. Person who who um who uh, mourns on Jerusalem will be meritorious and will see it eventually. Correct? But he's not seeing it now while he's doing the Avelut, right? While he's doing the Avelut, he's seeing it. So Rabbi Chaim says, no, that's exactly it. When you met Abel al Yerushalayim, what are you doing? You're refusing to be comforted. You're refusing to accept the reality. So you already see the, the Simcha of Yerushalayim. You already could be happy because I'm refusing the reality. So I don't have to be sad. I have to be happy. So my availus doesn't lead to sadness. The sadness leads to me being happy. Because the minute I refuse to accept, right, the reality, that's the first step to changing the reality. So that's where Rabbi Chaim is medayik from the Gemara Zolchevaroet, right? And I underline, I, I don't have the quote, I don't know the original source of Chaim Ivalajan, but I saw it in a safer, and I quote the safer, but underline the next piece underneath. This Avelis is the comfort and the, and the happiness and the joy. This is an Avelis, we said, of joy. It's an Avelis of happiness, right? Which is a contradiction, but Judaism selfish thing everything's a contradiction you know so like there's another one right 
We have to mourn. And the minute we mourn, we have to be happy that we're mourning. Not an easy thing to do. But that's what Rebbe Bivolotra says. This Avelis itself is the Nechama and Sim. I'll tell you, I, I always say that the best place to find out, you know, there was a book, something, I don't, I'm not remembering the exact name, but you guys will be able to tell me even though it was before your time. Everything I ever learned, I learned in kindergarten. Is there a book like that? Yeah, it's really yeah. good. I mean, it's a good book, right? Yeah. Everything I need to know, I asked as an English major, so she always corrects. Everything I need to know, I learned in kindergarten, right? So I'm going to say it a little bit different. My book is going to say everything I needed to know, I learned from a taxi driver. Because in Israel, every taxi driver knows everything, right? He's the prime minister. He's the defense minister. He's the minister of the economy. Every taxi driver, right? If you go to a taxi stand, you could get the whole Knesset there. You know, you just go with different drivers. I am the defense minister. I am the foreign minister. The foreign minister they have a problem with because most of them don't know English. So it's hard to be a foreign minister, you know, English. But they always find the taxi driver knows a little bit more some English, right? I was in a taxi many years ago. This only happens, not only, it doesn't happen mostly, not even, doesn't happen even in Tel Aviv. In Jerusalem, it happens. I never had a taxi. I didn't go much to Tel Aviv, but I had, I had taxi drive. It doesn't usually happen. But in Yushalayim, this can happen at any moment and so get ready. Yaakov Shimoni, does he sound like a taxi driver? <laughs> Who lives in the Katamonim? Yaakov Shimoni got into a cab, right? A, a week before Tisha B'Av. Goes many, many years ago. Probably he's retired today, Yaakov Shimoni, you know. And he turns around, Kvoda Rav. They would say Kvoda Rav, even though he doesn't know if I'm a Rav or not. He says, Kvoda Rav, I want to ask you a question. Why do you fast on Tisha B'Av? Did you ever get that question anywhere else in the world? You never get that question anywhere else in the world, right? Why do you fast on Tisha B'Av? So, of course, I give him the standard answer because of the destruction of the two Bate Mikdash. First temple and second, this so the more in the temple. He goes, That's not why I fast. I fast on Tishabov, that's not why. I fast on Tishabov because we don't have the faith to rebuild the temple. That's why. See what I mean? Everything I ever needed to know, I learned from the taxi driver. Right? What is he saying? He's saying an unbelievable vark. You don't fast because of the structure, you fast because we're not rebuilding it, right? Because that's the faith. That is the refusal to be comforted right i heard that that you sold from a taxi driver right generally from a sparty taxi driver. <laughs> right yeah so what is this idea this idea is that we need the idea of the idea of not accepting this, this reality means that I have faith in a new reality. Right? I have faith. I, I trust in a new reality. Right? In a new reality. That's what this morning is about. It's showing that we have faith that something else is going to happen. We're not going to be like this all our lives. 
I mean, Baruch Hashem, we can look back and we were born into a country called Eretz Israel, right? My parents, Esther's parents, many, many parents, right? Were born into a, a time when we didn't have Eretz Israel. Some of them was close to having Eretz Israel. We already, there was a one Aliyah, two Aliyot, whatever it was, but right? So we can look and reap the benefits of the of the amuna of our great great grandparents we can reap those benefits right we, for them it was purely a dream right it was purely something that might or might never happen but they thought it would happen right because like i said in every shmonesre we Every three times a day, right? Six times a day if you don't want to meet. No, five times a day if you don't want to meet. Myra, if you don't go over, but Mincha and Shachlis, the Chazan goes over, right? So five times a day is saying it. At a certain point, you have to start believing it, right? So that is what, that Imuna is what really got us to where we are sitting Mamish today. Without that, nothing would happen. Now, I have to tell you something interesting. I listened to it again this morning. There's the defense minister of Israel is a completely secular former general, which a lot of defense ministers are former generals. His name is Yov Galan, right? He got into a little bit of trouble with the new thing going on in Israel. He got fired, got fired, got hired. I don't remember exactly what happened. I can't keep up. But, but he was a general in the Israeli army, right? And in one of his opening speeches in the Knesset, you learn more from those opening speeches than anything else. The rest of the speech are usually lies, but the opening speeches are usually true. They talk about their family. And he says, I'm a secular Jew. And the only reason why I'm sitting here is because of those pictures I have hanging in my house of my great grandparents who were all religious Jews. This is what he says. I could play it for you. I heard it again this morning. He speaks for three minutes and 45 seconds. I mean, if you understand the Hebrew, it's unbelievable. Okay. He says, those pictures look like those people, Yadutta Torah. He turns to them. He turns to the Knesset the, the members are all Haredi, not Tatilu. Haredi. He says, they're all in the pictures. They all look like that. And that's why I'm sitting here today. He says, because they, he says, they dove into Jerusalem three times a day. And because my wife's great grandmother, she died running away from Hitler. He says this. Why? Because she refused to eat not kosher food. Even though they told her he could, there's no way. And she died on the way, running to Russia from Germany, from Poland, I think it was, right? He says, because she died, because she refused, that's why I'm sitting here today. Right? And the truth is that if you go back enough generations in any of your families, I don't care if they're Ashkenazi, Sephardi, it doesn't matter. Right? You go back generations, you see that those were the people that had the deep faith in the return to Eretz Israel. They never lost the first thing. Where does this come from? If we look well, let me explain something else. I'll explain you a halachic reality because of what I'm saying. 
you know, before we go on to the next topic of emuna, I want to explain to you a halakhic reality. A question that I had a question for many years, and then I found Mogan Avram in the 1600s, raised the question, and I didn't like his answer. And then I came up with, a, I think, a better answer than the Mogan Avram, if I do say so myself. Okay. It says in Shulchan Aruch like this, in number six, all the way at the left. It is a sore for um, uh, mature, you know, not big people, but mature people, old adults, right? Adults to give haircuts to the children who are not adults yet, less than 13, right? Ulechabes susam. Bishabbat, it should be Bishabbat, Shachal Tet Ba'av, Leos And to wash their clothing, right, um, in the Shabbos of the Tisha Yemim. Why does it say Shabbos Tisha Yemim? We have nine days, because of course I'm quoting here Rabbi Yosef Cairo, right? This is the Beit Yosef, this is the Machaber, he's saying, right? Comes along the Magan of Roman asks a question. Following question. Take a look underneath the Magan of Roman. Which is a commentary on the side of Shulchan Aruch. Comments on the on, on the Rabbi Yosef Cairo. He comments on Moshe Isolis, the Ramah. The Ketanim Nami Shayach Bolchinuch. Because on Ketanim, even though they're not obligated to mourn, you're supposed to educate them to mourn. It's only one big problem with it. We'll see in a second. Either because they you teach them because of mourning, or you teach them because of agmat nefesh means to be very sad and depressed, right? You want to teach them to be sad and depressed. And who does he quote? The Truma Tadeshin. Tafe is Truma Tadeshin, a Nashkenazi who lived in I think it was the 14th century. But Sarachin says, we have to look into this. This is a problem. There's a Gemara in Moed Katan. Shulchan Aruch says, you're not, you don't make a child who's not yet Barabat Mitzvah more. It's explicit in Shulchan Aruch. So in one place in Shulchan Aruch, it says, children don't mourn. And this place they do, it says that they do mourn. You're not allowed to cut their hair, right? You're not allowed to Wash their clothing. Again, I'm not getting into the, the specifics of halacha. A young child, you are allowed to wash their clothing. An older child, you're not, right? The point is they're still children. And we say they're mourning. We teach them to mourn. And in Shulchan Aruch, when it talks about mourning on a loss, loss of a parent, and lower later, this sometimes happens, unfortunately, that children lose a parent. And some of the children are yet not even bar mitzvah, Right? And halachically, they don't have to sit on a low chair. They don't have to mourn. They could shower the regular way, whatever it is, right? So the Mughan Avram is bothered with a contradiction, right? Venerally, the ba'avelot, the rabbim machmirim tveh. When it comes to avelot of the public, as opposed to private, we're more machmir. I know Rabbi Madigman was talking about avelot, the rabbim versus avelot, the yachid, right? I'm not going to go into that. But I don't believe that that's the answer. I believe that the answer is because the mourning is very different. 
you teach a child to mourn and not accept the reality. You teach a child to be happy about the mourning that you're allowed to do. Because that mourning means he's going to have faith that one day we won't be mourning. That one day what we're missing we will have. That's not the mourning that the Shulchan Aruch in your day is talking about. It's talking about the standard mourning. That you don't teach a child. But a child that, to, to teach a child, like Reb Chaim Yivalojan said, he necham of a simcha. It's a simcha to do this avelu. I'll be, I'm going to be happy now. I see now because I have not given up hope. I have not allowed this reality to take me over, right? That we want a child to also have. You do educate a child for emuna, And this Avelis is an emuna Avelis. It's not a Avelis of a new reality. That's what I think the answer is. But let's go into this concept of Amun. Why is Amuna play a central role in this idea in the, in the Avelis of Tishavah? Why does it play such a central role? And the answer to that is, if you look at number three and onward, you'll get, you'll get the answer. Because the original reason for mourning on the night of Tishavah didn't start with the Beit HaMikdash, as we know. Right, there's a very famous medrash, but nobody really thinks about what it's saying because it's a, it, at first sight it's a very difficult gemara. The gemara in Taanis says the following thing: "Vatisa kol ha'eda vayitnu et kolam vayifku ha'om balaylahu." That's the famous passage in Parsha Shlach, right? And the whole nation lifted up their the whole congregation lifted up. They're when lifted up by at they 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 hollered and cried in that night. said the following thing: When the Maraglim cried, when the Maraglim cried, and the nation started crying with them about they didn't refuse to go into Eretz Shul because they were scared, right? That was the night of Tisha B'Av. That's what Rabbi Yochanan says. Amr HaKadosh Baruch Atem b'chitem b'chiyah You cried for nothing? Because they cried for nothing. Well, why did you cry? What were you afraid of? What, God didn't take you into this desert? God didn't take you out of Egypt with miracles? What are you scared of? Ani ekba lachem This that you did on Tisha B'Av will become now a crying for generations. And in Chodesh Av and on Tishma, many things happened to the Jewish people, right? Because of this one night. This one night changed our whole future. One night of crying. Now, but if you think about the Medrash, it, it doesn't make so much sense. God says, because you cried on that night, I'm going to make you cry for many, many generations. Right? That's a strange way of punishing somebody. Very strange. Right? Okay, I could think of punishments, but that punishment, like, um, what are you going to gain from that God? What are you, God, you're just angry? You want to take come on them? You want to take revenge? Right? You know, I know sometimes parents feel that the kids cry for nothing. Right? 
but you, the parent doesn't say, I think it would be strange. I mean, maybe it does happen, but the, the parent goes to the kid, I'll give you something to cry about. Whack, right? I'll give you something to cry about. You cried for nothing? I'll give you something to cry about, right? I don't think we would think that that's very educational, right? There's other things, you know, there's other ways to calm down a child that cry for nothing, right? What we perceive as nothing, okay? Today, you have to be politically correct. The child obviously perceives that there was something terrible that went on, right? So, but we perceive that really in reality, nothing very terrible happened. You took the kid out of the toy store, so I call, right? They, they, you know, they wanted that toy that cost $150. He said, listen, we're going to leave the toy store because I see you can't handle it. And the kid starts crying. Is the kid crying? Kid thinks they're crying because they didn't get the $150, you know, full-grown, uh, I don't know, doll or something. Today you get these dolls that do more than the kids do, right? Yeah. Um, and um, so you, you take them out of the store. Take them out of the store. So what, are you crying over such a thing? You know, what's a big deal, you know? Especially if the parent told the child when they took them in the store, don't ask for anything. Right? The parents always try that. Don't ask for it. Take them to the supermarket. Don't ask for chocolate. And meanwhile, you got in that, that thing already, like 20 different types of chocolates already. Right? The kid wants to eat it already before you pay. And then you got to take it over to the to the woman who, who, you know, who woman or man who's doing the, you know, the, you know, the this checkout. And you have to say, you know, yeah, I, I know it looks like it's been eaten up. What can I do? My kid, you know, and then you have to apologize, right? And you came, told the kid nothing, nothing, right? So, you know, the kid cries over something, it's nothing, right? But we, right, we realize it's nothing, but we don't punish the kid. I'll give you something to cry over and, you know, hit them or something, right? That's what God did to us. So what's really, if you think about it, you need a shot here. You need a shot, right? What God was really saying is that I'm going to teach you throughout history to have a moon. Because the reason why there were the Miraglim is because there was a lack of a moon. Now, how do I know the problem was the lack of faith? Because it's in the text, okay? In, in number hey, it says like this, kasher yisa ish et bino and the desert that you saw, that he that God carried you just like a person carries his child in all this way. God was carrying us, taking care of us in the desert. You can't get better care that God gave us in the desert. He gave us food. He gave us drink. He made sure that we would not get hurt in the desert. And in this thing, when you had to send the spies, you didn't believe. After I did everything for you. That's very strange. In when he sums up the Maisa Maraglum, what the Maraglum did. And you, and you despise the Eretz Chemda. What's Eretz Chemda? Eretz Yisrael. Right? Uh, a, 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 what do you call it? A chemda means a very uh, lovable land, right? A lovable land. And they murmured in their tents. 
And what did God do? And God said, the first thing is, you're going to die in the desert. You don't have faith in me? Now you'll see what will happen in the natural way. And this night led to all the other exiles. In the nations. And to spread them out in the land. The first, that night led to all the different exiles we went through for the last 2,000 years. That's what it was. Clearly, in David HaMelech's Tillam, right? Where does it start from? In the Chumash, Asher by David, lo He didn't believe God. That's where it all starts. And the Python, you know who the Python is? That's, I guess, like a Yiddishized word, Python. Is that better? And the Python, right? The Python is the one who makes up the piyut, you know, the piyut, right? The poetry, right? The poems, right? He's called the Python, right? And both the Ashkenazim and Sephardim today have what we call kinot, right? That is written by early, early people, each one in their own community. So our earliest one, is the Khalir family, who may have lived as early as the 700s. You don't know, which is the period of the Amorayim still. You don't know, Tosfus already quotes them and says they're at least in the Gaonic period, if not earlier than that. And the Python says something that is very interesting. Khalir, at the beginning of the keynote for the Ashkenazim, that's underneath in Pusik. In number three, it says, I detected, I detected in the crying of Yilel Midbar. Yilel, Yilala is also crying. So instead of Delel Midbar, he says Yilel Midbar. That's poetry, right? In the crying and the night of the Midbar, I detected something God is saying. I detected or I differentiated, right, between, because lafchin means to also differentiate, means a few different things, but I detected, you detect the difference, lel milel, night of night, and desert of desert. What the heck does that mean? Right? That's the problem with the pie. You know, like we don't know what these men mean. So when we read these things, right, you could actually, the problem is we have a lot of it. I mean, it's like a little booklet. You can get it um, for anywhere from 10 shekel to 200 shekel, depending on what your commentary you want, right? With Soloveitchik and the, the uh, Rev, Rev, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, Lord Jonathan Sachs, they have, they made us, I think he's the one who edited the one with her Soloveitch's commentary, which is the, what is the, that's the one is the Koran edition. And then you have, of course, the Archville classic edition that also has commentary on it, right? Those are the more expensive editions. And then you get, really, for 10 shekel, you could buy one. People buy the 10 shekel one and then they don't take it home, right? The minag is, you don't take it home because you don't want to have it for next year, right? That's also part and parcel of that amuna. I won't need it next year, so I'm not taking an oath. Always the, the shamas in my shul would have to pick them up and put them in the geniza or save them for next year, but no one would, no one would take it home. 
in my time, it was a soft cover. It was like a dollar, of course, soft cover. But there's a lot of, a lot of stuff in there. In fact, some shoes even skip around because there's a lot to say. But if you actually learn it, right? You learn it, you see that there's a ton of depth in, those, in that poetry, a ton of depth. And Rev Soloveitchik, he's one of the first, by the way. Today, there's a lot of people who do it, but, and they won't, they'll, they won't claim that Rev Soloveitchik is the one who founded it, but he's the first one. I, I, I happened to be Zofa one time to hear Rev Soloveitchik on Tishabov in Boston, right? He sat from after chakras, right? After Kriyat Torah and Torah, from nine o'clock in the morning till six in the afternoon, saying nine hours, saying kinnis and explaining it. Later on, of course, it became the kinnis of the Koran edition, or there's another book that was put out with all his comments, because many comments he made each year, but Rav Soloveitchik was such a mayana mitgaber that he always had something new. And he spoke about Jewish history. And you could just sit there. I just sat there for nine hours and I forgot that I was fasting. I push you, forgot I was fasting. I held you, you're not allowed to sit there because you're getting too much pleasure. It was just so, the things he was saying was so original and beautiful, right? So in, in the, I forget the name of the, the safer, but maybe I have it here, yeah. The Lord is righteous in all his way. There's a book put out, not by Rosalichik, but on the themes that he spoke about on Tishbuk. And on this theme, he says the following thing. He refers to weeping on the night in the desert. I could almost not read it because they say Avhin. It says like a Spartan, right? Avhin, right? Bebchin lel midbar, which is the meaning of the specific reference, the night in the desert. What is that night in the desert? It means that the one single night in the desert was responsible for the whole catastrophe. That one night for the Churban and all the other catastrophes that happened on this night. The Paitan says here that he is mourning not only the night of the Churban, but, the, but also for the night of weeping, of, of weeping over the report of the spies in the desert that set up the stage for the Churban. In other words, he weeps not only for the Churban based on Mikdash happens night, but the night he weeps for the people who began the whole process because that's what led to it, right? That's where Absolute Matrix said. But then he goes on to say the following. He gives a number of interpretations of the second half. He says something very interesting here. Another interpretation is that there were two special nights in the desert. The night of Tishabab and the night of watching, what we call Leil Shimurim, which is Pesach, right? And then the Leil of Tishabov, which is the one we just read about. Both nights were in the desert. One took us out to the desert, and one unfortunately left us in the desert. When the Jewish people left Egypt and went into the desert, that's one of the two nights he's speaking about here. Milel, Milel, I'm differentiating between the two nights. What was the differentiation? The second night in the desert represents just the opposite night. That's the night of Tishabah, right? 
The first represents faith and absolute trust in HaKadosh Baruch Leo mi leo means there's a difference between one night is full of faith and the other night is a lack of faith. That's the two things. Those are the two ideas that are being expressed here. It's a different midbar. Right? It's a different night. One is a night of Emuna. One is a night that brought us into the desert. In that desert, we had Emuna. And God says, You went after me into a desert. I'm so... I have so much appreciation for you, Jewish people. I remember that chesed, dear Miol said, in the name of God, right? Because that showed you complete faith in me. And yet, sometime later, a year later, the Jewish people did the exact same opposite in the same desert. They showed the complete lack of faith. Lo aminu lidvarav. right? And that's why Tisha B'Av became a time when the Avod is Because through the Miraglum, we had to rebuild our Amunah. It wasn't God taking, he wasn't taking revenge and saying, now you're going to be, you know, in exile for thousands of years because you cried for nothing. Now I'll give you what to cry about. That's not what the Medrash means. The Chazal mean over here that I'm going to make a Bechir Lodorus because I want you to learn this idea of a moon. You're going to go through very difficult times and you're going to have to have a moon. And that way you're going to become very stronger. You're a moon. Because if you could last through all these trying times, then you're going to have a moon of heaven. There's no question about it. Right? I think they say in the name of the Belushiva Rebbe, that he was in the camps and he saw his whole family, his whole first family was killed with all his kids and everything. He's the sole survivor of his family. He used to stay in, when he was in the concentration camp. You don't have to keep testing me, God, because I'm not going to give in. I have faith and you're not going to break that faith no matter what you do to me. So you might as well end this all already. You might as well, you know, save us because we have the faith already and everything. That's, that's what we wanted to be God wanted to, that we maintain our faith no matter what happens. When it looks so dark and so dreary, maintain that faith. That's why the mourning over here on Tisha B'av is a mourning of faith. We mourn to say that we are, we're not giving up. We don't accept this reality. And I want to tell you a story. I don't know if the story is true. I always try to find out if stories are true. I was never successful on this one. But its story is told in many places. I'm going to tell you the way I heard it from my father. My father, when he, you know, my father spoke in the congregation. I never remember why he said the stories, but I always remember the stories. I remember the stories. I tell you, now I can think about like maybe he said it for this reason. I don't know. I don't remember when it was, but but I remember hearing. And the best thing, you know, a lot of times people say that you know, sometimes you can't learn enough from a Jew. You got to go to a non-Jew, right? That's why they answer the question of, it's a very famous question. The first thing we say in our Siddur is, <laughs> I can't, you can't find the Jew to quote. 
You have to call Bilam, right? You have to start the whole city with a gun, a non-Jew, right? I mean, I'm not against non-Jews, don't get me wrong, but I wouldn't start my prayer day with it, you know? Right? It's a big question, but sometimes, you know, when the non-Jew testifies, then it's it's much better. You know, the non-Jew testifies, now you should really hear it, you know? You know, if the guy believes that, are we have great hopes, right? Maybe we should actually believe that. So a lot of times it's important to, to, um, to hear from the non-Jew. My grandfather once made fun of Rebutner. My Rosh Hashiva, my Rosh Hashiva and Rabbi Yaakov were traveling to a to a uh, convention in upstate New York. They were traveling to a convention. Two older sages. They were in a car that was a driver, and my grandfather was had this Mishigas that he learned all the maps of New York by heart. He didn't drive. He could have mamish been the ways, the voice of the way. He mamish knew all the maps. I have a cousin from the Sherman side, not from the Commonwealth side, from the Sherman side, told me he once drove Rabbi Yaakov from the Catskill Mountains and there was traffic. And Rabbi Yaakov said, I have, I know a road that you could take that won't be traffic. And he said to Rabbi Yaakov, I've been driving for 15 years. He says, believe me, I'm telling you. And he took this route, didn't have traffic. Okay. So Rabbi Yaakov and Rav Hutner, so Karl Lavracha are driving to the convention. And Rabbi Yaakov notices from the sun that we're going in the wrong direction. We should be going west and we're going east. And he says, listen to the driver. The driver should, you know, driver should make a U-turn where you can the next exit because we're going the wrong way. And Rav Hutner right away said, Rabbi Yaakov, you don't drive it, I don't drive. Right? He drives. Let's leave him. And Rabbi Yaakov would not give up. He was getting agitated. He said, he's driving the wrong way. So Rav Hutner made a pshara. He wanted to calm down. He says, at the next, there's a toll booth. The guy actually said it. There's a toll booth. Well, let's get the toll booth. Rabbi so upset because they missed the exit because of it. They get to the toll booth and they ask the guy, in those days, they don't have this anymore, but in those days, there was a one time in America, there were people in the toll booth, right? And you could actually give them the money and they gave you change and everything, right? So. Um, they asked the guy in the toll booth, not Jewish guy, you know, standing in the toll booth, he's taking, you know, with the hat on, right? And he says, you're going the wrong way. So Rabbi Yaakov turns to her foot and he says, now that the guy said it, it's better. Sometimes the guy has to say it, then I'm trying to say it. So I'm telling you a story of Napoleon. He was the emperor of, of France, right? And he conquered the world. You know this story, right? It's a famous story, but now you really understand, right? Napoleon was, it's not clear. Some people say it happened. He was going through Vilna with the army. Some people say he was walking through a neighborhood in France, right? The way I heard it from my father was that he was going through an area, a Jewish area with his soldiers and they needed to get food and stuff. And they come in on an evening and there's nobody home. Everybody, nobody's in the house. They knock on doors, nobody's in the house. And they walk past the shul and they see it's dark in the shul, right? And they, one of the guys, one of the soldiers walks into the shul, he sees everybody sitting with a candle. They're sitting with candles next to the candle and they're crying and saying, they're saying uh, different things, right? They're so he goes out and he tells Napoleon that 
all the Jews from this town are all in are all in the, in the shul, or in the Bet Knesset, in the synagogue, whatever they called it in France, French. Right? He says, and he says, go in and ask them what they're doing there. So he, he goes in and he says, he says to the one of the guys sitting there, like, what are you guys doing here with these candles on the floor? And there's no light, you know, there's no candles. There were no lights, there was electricity, but they had, you know, lanterns and everything. There's little candles on the floor. What are you, what are you doing? Right? So he says, we're mourning a temple of ours was destroyed. Our two temples were destroyed. We're mourning it. So he says, when were they destroyed? He says, well, 1,700 years ago, they were destroyed. Now he's in a shop. He says, what's that? Are you mourning the temples that were destroyed 700 years ago? He says, yeah. Goes out and tells Napoleon. Right? He didn't know if he should tell him. Like, these Jews are sitting ill here. The whole town is sitting there mourning a temple that's destroyed 700 years ago. He says, yeah. He says, I'm sure that if you mourn a temple for 1,700 years, you're going to eventually rebuild it. That's the Yusuf. Napoleon said the Yusuf. That if you're mourning, right, in a way that refused to accept the reality of the destruction, right? Because we don't find it with anybody else. I always say, how many Italians, you know, are waiting for, you know, to go back to Italy? You know, I, I know Italians in New York in my name, but I didn't, I didn't have one of them that says, like, I can't wait till the Messiah comes and I go back to Italy, right? Maybe according to them, the Messiah did come already. I don't know, but, but. But they don't find it. They're going back, you know, they want to go back to Italy. Here the Jews are talking about Jews for years, right? And then Governor Mel said it in the in the in the tell If you forget Jerusalem, it's like forgetting my whole strength, my whole right arm. And how many halachas and minhagim came about because of that, right? If I don't bring up Jerusalem, whatever I have a simcha, right? So at the simcha that Rabbi Yosef Cairo in the Shulchan Aruch says that you take ashes and you put it on the head of the chatat. Because it says, on the head of the simcha, which roach means it should be first and foremost. But Rabbi Yosef Cairo takes it literal. On the ashes, right? And and a lot of people have at weddings today. It's most weddings, certainly in Israel, that the chatat actually says it. I've even seen some weddings where the kala says it, right? That's the chatat. We have to have equal opportunity, right? And she says, the whole pasik. The taz says you, the chasik should actually say it. And then, of course, you break a glass. And then in Israel, people always leave a amal abba. They leave a a a blank in their painting, right? Where they don't paint. So you just see the, the, the wall that was not yet, you know, the wall that's not yet painted. It's just, you know, carved out over there, right? And why, why is all that? So no one's ever gonna forget that we refuse to accept the reality. And it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter if you go on the Temple Mount, you don't go on the Temple Mount. I mean, according to, Yaakov Shimoni, you got to go on the, you have to have a movie, you got to start rebuilding it brick by brick, right? But it doesn't matter if you do, you know, the idea over here is that we never accept 
the reality, except a reality that is a geula, that's a, 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 a complete redemption. That is right. And we begin to see it already, right? We begin to see it, but we don't accept this reality either. We don't accept this reality. There's more to come. And that's what the Tisha B'Av is still relevant for today, because until that reality, one day there won't be a Tisha B'Av. But as long as the reality is not met completely, we still mourn in a way that we don't accept the reality of today because there's a new reality of tomorrow.